if somebody wakes me up in the middle of the night and asks me to summarize in one sentence what happened in discussions of foundations of quantum mechanics over the past 30 years or so, the sentence would be, look, the possibility of a realistic understanding of quantum mechanics has now been decisively put back on the table. The arguments that had carried so much weight for a whole century to the effect that such a naive, realistic understanding was impossible have been decisively, clearly, concisely refuted to everybody's satisfaction. And now the project of um, trying to use our best physics as a guide to our metaphysics is at least back on the table. Hello, this is Robinson Earhart here with Pins the Podcat, a new Pins the Podcat based t-shirt that Pins is currently shielding with her her body. And then the introduction to an absolute total banger of an episode, Robinson's Podcast number 157, with coincidentally one of my absolute favorite people in the Robinson's Podcast universe in the philosophy universe, in the physics universe, and that is David Albert, who is the Frederick E. Woodbridge Professor of Philosophy at Columbia University and, goes without saying, for longtime listeners of the show, one of the world's most respected philosophers of physics. And he's also the director of the Philosophical Foundations of Physics program at Columbia University and a faculty member of the John Bell Institute for the Foundations of Physics. And while this is pins is probably some somewhere in the hundreds, maybe 157th episode, maybe she's made an appearance on every episode, I'm not sure. Uh, while it's her 157th episode on the show, possibly, it's certainly my 157th appearance, this is David's fifth appearance on the show, which is a record. And that's how you know that I love him. And he appeared on episode 23 with Justin Clark Doan on Metaethics and Absolute Space, on episode 30 on The Philosophy of Time, episode 67 with Tim Maudlin, the founder of the John Bell Institute for the Foundations of Physics, on The Foundations of Quantum Theory, and then episode 106 with Sean Carroll on Many Worlds, Boltzmann Brains, and Fine Tuning. But in this episode... We talk about David's new book, which I just read and highly recommend, and I'll get more to that in a moment, A Guess at the Riddle, Essays on the Physical Underpinnings of Quantum Mechanics. And as we talk about that, we also talk about the metaphysics of quantum mechanics. And the book is great. It consists of three essays about quantum mechanics, though even the introduction is worth the price of the book in its own right, so I highly recommend it. But if you're interested in the philosophy of physics, though I will make the caveat that it requires some background knowledge, but you can pick that up from David's other book, Quantum Mechanics and Experience, you should definitely be reading this book. So that's what we talk about. Finally, check out the the John Bell Institute, my last guest, Faye Dowker is a faculty member there as well, and Tim Maudlin, who I just mentioned, and there are so many others that I've interviewed. But the JBI is devoted to providing a home currently situated in Hvar, Croatia, but 
tentatively, uh, tenuously, tentatively, um, on the foundations of quantum mechanics. And they need donations. So please help. I've donated. Please help. Then I mentioned that shirt, I think, that Pins was blocking. And it says Robinson's podcast with Pins the podcast. And there I am riding her uh, with my glorious mustache like she's a horse. And that's available at robinsonsfashionempire.com along with a couple of other shirts. And I don't have a Patreon or anything. So if you feel like wearing a shirt like this, uh, you can get it there. And you could also try the robinsonairheart.com URL. But now, without any further ado, I will hand it off to me a little bit and largely David. So I hope that you enjoy this conversation as much as I enjoyed having it with the aforementioned David. You and I have have spoken before uh, with Tim Monlin and then Sean Carroll about quantum mechanics and its theories or interpretations, but I don't think we've ever talked explicitly about the metaphysics of quantum mechanics. And I think a good place to start before we get into maybe the, the meat of a guess at the riddle is what some of the core metaphysical questions are about quantum mechanics and why it is that only more recently these questions are being asked again. Right. I mean, I, I'm not sure there's a very sharp distinction between what you were calling interpretations of quantum quantum mechanics and what you're calling the metaphysics of quantum mechanics. But the idea is roughly this. Um, in the beginning of the 20th century, when quantum mechanics was first being formulated, when these very, very strange behaviors of subatomic particles uh, uh, were being experimentally discovered, and when people were struggling to make sense of these behaviors and of issues like the stability of atomic matter and so on and so forth, um, um, quantum mechanics was developed by a, a circle of people who were in many ways intellectually centered on Niels Bohr uh, in Copenhagen. Um, a theory was developed that these people claimed very influentially, I mean, and convinced everyone, was not amenable to any realistic understanding, okay? Um, that the only way, the only coherent way to approach this theory was in a radically instrumentalist way, um, that the theory was a mechanism, that the theory was a recipe or an algorithm for making predictions about the results of experiments. And any attempt to correlate the symbols in the theory with things that were going on under the table, things that were really going on in the world, in between these experiments that could give us an account of why the experiments were coming out the way they did, any such realistic aspirations were declared by Bohr and the circle of people around him um, to be, any such aspirations were declared to be hopeless. 
um, any attempt to pursue these aspirations were, were going to collapse into paradox and contradiction and so on and so forth. I, I mean, it is thinking back on it now, pulling back on it by a hundred years, the idea that people somehow convince themselves that the outcomes of certain experiments, you know, the positions on pointers of various measuring devices, somehow entailed that um, that 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 there wasn't a world out there that could be captured in realistic language. Or I mean, <laughs> it's astounding to think nowadays that people talk them into talk themselves into a position like that. But they did indeed. And the person at the center of these developments, Bohr, was apparently a sort of breathtakingly charismatic figure. Um, um, you know, if you read Bohr, if you read the kinds of arguments for this position that Bohr attempts to write down on paper, it's impossible to make sense of them. Um, it's really impossible to make sense of them. Um, but his effect on people that he spoke to in person, his effect on smart people that he spoke to in person was astounding. People would take a walk in the woods with him for a half an hour and their lives would be changed. Uh, um, and he was, um, he inspired enormous intellectual loyalty and intellectual reverence uh, among some of the smartest people in the 20th century. Anyway, um, for all these reasons, there was a very strong prejudice in physics about quantum mechanics, that quantum mechanics in some very decisive way represented the end of the scientific project as it had previously been construed, okay, where it was a project that was aimed at providing us with a more or less literal, more or less naively realistic picture of how the world worked. Um, and a picture that was going to be fit then to be a guide to doing metaphysics, okay? Um, a picture that was fit um, to at least be a starting point to read our metaphysics off from. And the effect of Bohr um, and his circle, and like I say, this was a circle of people who quickly convinced the entire community of theoretical physics. Um, um, the, the effect of this was to, was to declare that on the contrary, if there was a project of metaphysics at all, physics wasn't going to have anything to contribute to it because physics was just not in the business and could not be in the business of, uh, of providing, you know, of offering anything like a literal flat-footed, traditionally realistic sort of picture of what was going on in the world. Good. This general mood in theoretical physics persists for more or less a century. Um, there's a lot of stories to tell 
about how it was maintained for that long. It involved a lot of real sort of uh, on a professional and intellectual level brutality. Um, um, people who were interested in these questions didn't get jobs, um, were dismissed as nuts. Even figures like Schrodinger um, and bo David Bohm, and especially and, in, and particularly Einstein, um, who raised objections to this, who said that they didn't see how these anti-realist arguments worked, who were interested in developing a realistic understanding, these people were responded to with dismissal, with gibberish, with, with purported answers to them that weren't really answers to their questions at all. Um, um, this prohibition on thinking along these lines was enforced with a very, very heavy hand throughout much of the 20th century. You know, a lot of your viewers probably recently saw Oppenheimer uh, over the summer. One of the things that's going on off screen in Oppenheimer that never really gets explained, but has a few consequences on screen is the position of Einstein in physics at the time of the Manhattan Project. There's a scene, I think, early in the movie when Oppenheimer is being shown around his the office he's being offered at the Institute for Advanced Study, and they see Einstein out the window. And the guy who's showing him around says, you know, I never understood why you didn't involve uh, Einstein more in, in, the, in the Los Alamos project. Um, after all, Einstein is the, is the foremost, uh, uh, you know, the foremost thinker about physics alive. And Oppenheimer responds kind of mysteriously in the movie. Well, he was um, the foremost figure. It's been, uh, you know, it's been 40 years or so since the guy really did anything. That's not true. What the guy had been doing during those 40 years was raising objections uh, to, to the attitude of Bohr in his circle about quantum mechanics. And, um, and even such a, such a sort of towering figure as Einstein could be ostracized, could be turned into what Einstein used to refer to as a museum piece um, um, because of the sort of brutality of the insistence that nobody challenged this dogma of Bohr's, um, um, that the realistic, you know, that physics needed to accept the end of its realistic aspirations. Okay, good. Like I say, there's a long, interesting story about how this was enforced. It involves, you know, one could write a sort of underground intellectual history of the 20th century just by following this debate out. I mean, it involves the rise of modernism. Uh, it involves the McCarthy period in the United States. It involves all kinds of interesting stuff. Um, there's a nice book about it that I recommend to your viewers if they're interested in this history um, that came out a couple of years ago by a guy named Adam Becker. Um, uh, it's called What is Real? 
I think the title is kind of goofy, but I think the book is the book is quite good. Um, anyway, to get around um, after a lot of circumlocutions to your question, um, um, I would say in the last thirty years or so, a number of philosophers of physics and physicists have finally very powerfully, very clearly made the case that Bohr and his circle were completely wrong about this, that their arguments that any attempt to produce a realistic interpretation of quantum mechanics was bound to collapse into paradox and self-contradiction uh, and so on, was shown by means of producing a number of explicit constructive counterexamples to be false. Um, um, so, what you know, if somebody wakes me up in the middle of the night and asks me to summarize in one sentence what happened in discussions of foundations of quantum mechanics over the past 30 years or so, the sentence would be, look, the possibility of a realistic understanding of quantum mechanics has now been decisively put back on the table. The arguments that had carried so much weight for a whole century to the effect that such a naive realistic understanding was impossible have been decisively, clearly, concisely refuted to everybody's satisfaction. And now the project of um, trying to use our best physics as a guide to our metaphysics is at least back on the table. One may have had doubts from the beginning um, whether physics should be a good guide to metaphysics or not. But if you were inclined to think that a good metaphysics ought at the very least to be very deeply informed by our best available physics, that was now back on the table as a coherent possibility. Let me say in a little more detail what went on. Um, um, the thing that the Bohr's argument that there couldn't be any such thing as a naive, mechanical, realistic understanding of the experiments that quantum mechanics described centered on a particular problem, centered on a particular paradox, which came to be called the measurement problem. Okay. Um, that, that it was, you know, that there was some um, very important idea that quantum mechanics and quantum mechanics being the most fundamental contemporary approach to physics physics itself required before you got started cutting the world up into a part that is observed and a part that observes okay um be, and and if you tried to give a complete description of the world within your physics that is if you tried to push everything to the side of the observed okay to the to the into the collection of things that the physical theory is supposed to describe the theory would implode the theory would collapse blah 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 um so there was supposed to be this obstacle 
to a traditionally realistic, comprehensive description of the world that had to do with the act of measurement and that came to be called the measurement problem. Um, what happened um, over the past 30 years is that arguments were made that, um, and so this problem, let me just back up a little bit, this so-called measurement problem was absolutely not thought of by Bohr and his circle as a pro as something in the nature of a scientific problem, okay? As something that it was going to be the task of physics to solve, okay? Um, it was something quite different, of a quite different kind. This is where physics came up against, um, uh, against the limits of, of the scientific comprehensibility of the world, okay? This is where physics came up against the limits of the kind of project that it had always been engaged in. This was the direct encounter with the ineffable or something like that. Okay, so the measurement problem didn't represent something that somebody anybody should work on or anything like that. And it was considered a sign of naivete, of intellectual immaturity on the part of people as august as Einstein and so on, that that they they thought that what you should do with this is try to solve it. Okay, good. Um, a number of people working mostly, you know, you know, whose work was mostly ignored, um, did in fact present solutions to the measurement problem. People like David Bohm in the 1950s, uh, people like the Italian physicist Girardi, Romini, and Weber in the early 1980s. Um, um, what happened in People may be like Everett, also like you, Everett, in the 1950s. Um, whether whether Everett really achieved the solution to the measurement problem or not is a debate, a debate that I've had on your show with, with Sean Carroll and so on and so forth. But anyway, there were a number of people whose work wasn't paid very much attention um, um, who did explicitly by counterexample, show that Bohr was wrong. They wrote down coherent solutions to this problem, coherent ways of, of thinking, you know, of allowing oneself to think that quantum mechanics amounted to a complete description of the physical world, including the process of measurement, including the measurer treated as an ordinary physical object, and so on. Good. These things happened. Nobody paid much attention to them. Bell, I think, inspired a generation of people closer to my age um, um, to look at these to, to look at these proposals seriously, um, to see that they really did provide decisive, constructive counterexamples to the doctrine of Bohr and his circle, um, and that they refuted what was announced as this huge discovery in the beginning of the 20th century, that the days of, of, you know, of naive realism about what science could do were over. Okay, good. So a number of people wrote down constructive, you know, explicit solutions to the measurement problem, at least insofar as 
the simple versions of quantum mechanics, non-relativistic, so-called first quantized versions of quantum mechanics go. Um, and this, uh, and, and I think what happened over the past 30 years or so is that a bunch of people thinking about the foundations of physics took these counterexamples, investigated with them, worked with them, were able to present a very, very decisive case that this problem, which was supposed to be the great obstacle to a realistic version of quantum mechanics, could be solved. Okay, that in fact it was an ordinary scientific problem, like other scientific problems. And what you needed to do in order to solve it is make certain explicit physical mathematical changes in the quantum mechanical formalism so that it wasn't burdened with this problem um, anymore. So, ironically, the contribution of philosophers here was to insist. Um, um, that a certain problem which Bohr had wanted to insist was a gigantic philosophical problem about the fundamental ineffability of the world was in fact an ordinary scientific problem, okay? Which is exactly what Bohr had been denying it was. Once you've got this, once you've got several proposals on the table for actually solving this problem, once you have several proposals on the table for an actual internally consistent mathematical framework of a theory which was clearly susceptible of a realistic interpretation, then the question can again arise and finally did arise, I would say about 25 or 30 years ago in a serious way in discussions of the foundations of physics, a question can then arise about what the appropriate realistic interpretation of this theory is. What this theory is in fact telling us about the structure of the world, about the natures of these subatomic particles whose behaviors are so strange, about how it is that matter manages to stay stable, even though classical physics would have predicted its almost immediate collapse, um, so on and so forth. So you've got a chance to treat this theory again, as lots of people were treating physics toward the end of the 19th century, okay, as the sort of royal guide to metaphysics, okay? Maybe it wasn't all there was to metaphysics, but it was something that was going to be um, um, a great aid to metaphysics. It's where, it's one of the places where metaphysical speculation about the structure of the world ought properly to start, okay? And this business got up and running again, um, um, I would say about 20, 25 years ago. Ironically, there were a whole bunch of people, like I say, people of around my age, um, um, people like uh, uh, Tim Maudlin, people who you've had on your show a lot, people like Barry Lower, lots of people who were interested in the foundations of physics. Um, um, there were a bunch of people who had, who were absolutely in lockstep 
with one another, who were finishing one another's sentences. When it came to giving these arguments that um, uh, that Bohr's position was wrong, okay? And as soon as it felt like that job had, had been adequately done, um, we found that we had very different intuitions. Now that now that the the possibility of entertaining a realistic interpretation of quantum mechanics was back on the table, now that this measurement problem, which was supposed to be the great impediment to such an interpretation, had been taken out of the way, now that we were free to say to ourselves, good, what does this theory seem to be telling us in a sort of naive, realistic way about the structure of the world? It turns out that people who had been involved in arguing that the measurement problem was a scientific problem and had a scientific solution ended up with very different intuitions about what the theories we were left with suggested about the basic metaphysical structure of the world. And what I mean by the basic metaphysical structure of the world, and this is finally at very long last, getting back to your original question, what we mean is questions like um, um, what the fundamental physical systems are, okay? Um, what the fundamental physical ontology uh, of the world is. That's the question um, uh, that a lot of these debates have been around. And also associated questions um, about what we should think uh, about phenomena like uh, 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 what we should think about principles of locality and phenomena of non-locality, which I'm happy to go into um, um, later on if you'd like. But the, the basic metaphysical question is the standard one. Um, um, what's the fundamental ontology of the world? What's the stage, you know, which we used to think was three-dimensional space and time on which that ontology parades around? Um, um, what's the stage on which the, the fundamental history of the world unfolds? Those are the sorts of basic metaphysical questions that people are thinking about. Hmm. There's a lot there, and it was all great. I have uh, a few comments. So your discussion of Bohr's character very much, I mean, it brings me back to Lee Smolin, who I've talked to a couple of times recently, and I, I just read his book Einstein's Unfinished Revolution which I think came out three or four years ago but he also talks a lot about Bohr it's much more of an invective about uh, about the anti-realists but it's an amazing how an endeavor that should be I mean mathematics aside the the paragon of objective impersonal investigation can in effect be dictated and steered by a person with such strong anti-realist philosophical prejudices. It, it's it's quite amazing. I mean, like I say, I think there are a lot of stories you can tell about this, um, um, about what was going on in people's heads. I don't think, for example, this was completely independent of things like, say, um, um, you know, all kinds of phenomena, the rise of literary modernism 
in the beginning of the 20th century. The influence, especially on people like Bohr, of philosophical figures like Hegel uh, um, um, and Kirk, you know, and his countryman Kierkegaard. Um, um, you know, there was, there seemed to be enormous intellectual revolutions going on all over the place. That was kind of the thing to do. Okay. In literature, there was supposed to be a crisis of representation. Okay. Which, which had to do with the origins of literary modernism. I don't have any historical evidence at all for this, but it makes so much sense to me to imagine Bohr saying to himself, you think you've got a crisis of representation, okay? You got a crisis of representation about human motivations, about history, about, I got a crisis of representation about rocks, okay? Yeah. This is infinitely more radical than your crisis of representation. So I think there was a spirit um, of, you know, uh, that had to do with Hegel, that had to do with Kierkegaard, that had to do with the rise of literary modernism in the beginning of the 20th century and so-called crises of representation. There is no doubt that the development of quantum mechanics was an influence on lots of people in, you know, who were who were importantly involved with the rise of literary modernism. I think you can tell a lot of stories about Virginia Woolf, for example. I think you can tell a lot of stories about Joyce. Um, um, I think you can tell, you know, there's a beautiful, there's a, uh, uh, Walter Benjamin um, has two essays that I know of about Kafka. Um, one of them, that an er, there's an earlier, longer one, which never moved me that much. There's a shorter, later essay about Kafka, which I find extraordinarily moving. And one of the ways he reads Kafka, he starts out by saying, I know there are all kinds of standard readings of Kafka about the, about the bureaucratic structure of modern life, about this, that, so on and so forth. I want to read Kafka as a reaction to the discoveries of modern physics. Okay. Or at least that's one of the ways he wants to read them. And he starts out with this long quote, this famous quote from Eddington's wonderful book called The Nature of the Physical World. This book was apparently an enormous influence on Walter Benjamin. And uh, he, he starts out with this famous quote from Eddington's book about how complicated it is, given the picture of the world that we have from modern physics, to walk across a room. OK, that, you know, that that the electrons in the floor are smacking into the electrons in your feet and you're trying to keep your balance. And how does it's a very, very beautiful passage. Benjamin quotes this passage at length and says, I can't think of any passage anywhere in all of literature that's more like Kafka than exactly this passage um, um, from from Arthur Eddington. Good. So anyway. I think there was a zeitgeist that that Bohr's attitude, you know, and that Bohr's sort of undermining of the realistic objective aspirations, traditional aspirations of physics, he that he thought it fit in with. Okay. They saw themselves 
these people saw themselves as at the vanguard of a tremendous intellectual upheaval that was much bigger than just physics, okay? That was going to expand to lots of things. He had these, all of these Gurdjieff-like slogans, you know, a, a, a trivial truth is a truth whose negation is false. A profound truth is a truth whose negation is also true, okay? Of course, you can smell Hegel in this a mile away. Um, um, so, yeah, it is funny that that was the case. It is funny that that would succeed in physics. I mean, there was this funny combination of things. They, on the one hand, they had this absolutely useless and and you know mind numb mind numbing dogma about anti-realism about about what he called um, complementarity. Um, which is this doctrine, this sort of Hegelian dialectical sort of doctrine that I've just been talking about. So there was all this fluff around the mathematics that they had. Then they had this mathematics. Um, they had this recipe for predicting the outcomes of experiments, which was unbelievably breathtakingly powerful and accurate. Okay. Um, um, so they had this sort of glamorous talk. They had this insane predictive power. This is a this is a compelling combination, okay? And was a compelling combination to lots of people. One other comment before we move on is that you, I think, your words were uh, for bore and all. Uh, quantum mechanics should just be thought of as an algorithm for making predictions or explanations. And then in my words, or uh, in Bell's words, we shouldn't be, there are no beables really to get that, get at. We're just concerned with observables. But this is, this is quite interesting to me just because of some conversations I've had on the show with some eminent string theorists, where I think there's an illustrative distinction to be found. And the string theorist I have in mind in particular is Andy Strominger. So he, of course, is well known for with Kumrun Vafa using string theory to account for this major problem with black holes. But as I was talking to him, you mean the information loss problem. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, Beckenstein Hawking radiation. Yeah. And, and as I was talking to him, it became quite clear that he's using in in the same way, maybe as Bohr or similar way, he's using the apparatus of string theory to solve this important problem and, and make some predictions. But at the same time, he said that he has essentially zero credence that we will ever observe strings that will ever confirm their existence in any way. And the illustrative distinction that I think is here is he still thinks that there's a fact of the matter about whether they're there or not. Whereas for Bohr, my understanding is we don't even ask that question. It's it's outside the purvey of science. But I, I understand this isn't the case with all string theorists. I think your friend Brian Green, for instance, uh, he, he quotes a couple of times 
this prediction of Ed Witten's that maybe you'll look up in the sky and see a cosmic string. And that would be a funny way to confirm string theory. But before we move on, let me just try to summarize really quickly what we've covered so far. So the Can I say a word about, can I say a word about, I think string theory gets kind of a bad rap uh, about the observability. And from what you're describing of what Strominger said to you, I think he conceded more than he needed to. Okay. It's one thing to, you know, we, we are used to for a long time in science getting what I might, I, I, what I guess you might call indirect, but nonetheless very compelling and determinately empirical confirmations of some of our theories. Okay. It's not the case that the only way to reasonably raise our credence in the existence of strings is to see a string. Okay. We could um, we could show that certain other you know other claims about the world follow from can de- be deduced from the hypothesis that strings exist, and if we notice those features in the world, that has every right in the world to be called um, a, a piece of empirical data, which is which is which is confirmatory, confirmatory in the philosophy of science sense. Doesn't mean it proves anything. Things don't get proven in the natural sciences, but but ought to reasonably raise our confidence in the existence of strings. People often say stuff like this about multiverse theories as well, which are closely connected with string theories. Um, um, People say multiverse theories are not scientific theories because by stipulation we can't observe these other universes. That doesn't seem right to me. If we have strong reason to believe, strong empirical reason to believe that certain claim, you know, that certain claims about the fundamental structure of the world are true in the sense that they provide the best and most compelling and most reasonable explanations of phenomena that we do observe. Okay, and we also find out that um, that that those principles which we take to be well confirmed entail that other universes must exist. Okay. That's good empirical evidence, albeit indirect, for the existence of other universes. So I think some of the string people um, don't, you know, would be absolutely right to defend themselves on empirical grounds more vigorously than they often do. Okay, we don't. We it's not the case that the only empirical confirmation we can imagine in string theories that we look up in the sky and we see a big cosmic string. There are all sorts of ways which, although there may be more indirect, are perfectly reasonable, perfectly compelling, perfectly continuous with the scientific tradition, in which we might be able to put ourselves in a position to say, the hypothesis that strings exist are well confirmed by our experience of the by our empirical experience of the world. Hmm. Well, maybe we'll have a chance to get back to string theory because it comes up in one of your essays and I guess at the riddle though you don't actually refer to it as string theory you just mention these I think seven compact or six compact dimensions. But anyway, let me 
let me again try to just summarize this before we move on. So the upshot is that the well, the upshot for the for Bohr is that the denial of the Beables by the Copenhagen school, it precluded any connection of physics going forward with metaphysics. Uh and there was a lot of hostility to people like Bohm or Einstein who, who sought some sort of something deeper. But as you summarized, I mean, due to the the concerted effort of a few philosophers that I've gotten to talk to and physicists uh, lately, realism is back on the table now and metaphysics should be informed by physics, which is a point that Tim often makes. But now within realism, there are are many different competing views. Okay, great. This is, I guess, maybe uh, sidetracking us for a moment, but I, I recently spoke uh, for a second time to another ex-Columbia and ex-Heim Gaveman student, uh, Anubhav Vasudevan, who's who's now a professor at Chicago. And we talked for, I think, close to two hours all about Charles Saunders Pierce's bizarre metaphysics. <laughs> and as I prepared for that conversation with Anubhav, I realized that the title of your new book comes from one of Pierce's. Yes. I guess at the riddle. And yes. I was wondering um, what, what... It's just, I can't claim any, uh, you know, what very little reading I've done of Pierce is stuff that I admire. Um, 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 you know, and I'm very much aware of his role in the development of American pragmatism and, and so on. But I, but, you know, I've got no, I've got nothing interesting to say about Pierce, except that his title was good enough to steal. Yeah, no, it was a good title. Uh, but okay, so then moving on. Uh, another thing I should ask you about, I would ask you about not only since you've already brought it up and given me permission to do so, but because it's of enduring general interest and also metaphysical interest is about the history of locality uh, as a phenomenon in physics. So this is something else I, I may ramble for a while. I really love the rambling. That's great. Cut, cut me off when, when you need to. So look, th there's a really interesting story here. Um, uh, you, know, a, you know, there's a very basic expectation there's a very basic intuition with which we approach the world, okay? This intuition is much, much older than, um, uh, than you know, modern physics or modern science. By modern, I mean, you know, since the 17th century. It's much older than that. Um, it's much older than scientific speculation. Um, it's probably much older than human beings, okay? It seems to me that fish have this intuition or octopi have this intuition or something like that. Well, you never know about octopi. Yeah, Here, here's the intuition, um, um, which is called nowadays locality in physics. Um, the intuition is that things that happen here, okay, are only, or let, let me put it th this way, things that happen here only directly and unmediatedly influence other things that happen 
immediately contiguous to here, both spatially and temporal. Okay. Um, stuff that the effects of stuff that go on here don't jump discontinuously across space and time and affect something else. Okay. Um, things that happen here only directly affect other things that happen immediately contiguous to them. Of course, by doing something here, I can make it the case that eventually dramatic things happen far away. I give someone an order to travel to Chicago and punch somebody in the face um, or something like that. Or I flip a light switch over here and, and on the other side of the room, a light goes on. But in all of those cases, we are convinced that if you scrutinize the process carefully enough, if you rip up the wall where the light switch is, you'll find a wire running continuously and without a break all the way from the light switch to the light that went on. If I analyze the process by which the guy in Chicago got punched in the nose, well, I, I affected this guy while he was standing right next to me by giving him this order. I can even break that down. I influenced the air right at my lips by moving my lips. That that moving air, you know, caused air next to it to move. That moving air caused the air next to it to move, dot, 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 until it got to his ears. Then he goes and gets on a plane, keeping my orders in mind all the time, travels to Chicago. The guy ends up getting punched in the nose. Okay. The claim is that under any circumstances, where something that happens over here affects something that happens over here, it will always be possible to find by sufficiently rigorous examination um, a, a, an unbroken chain of mediating causes and effects and causes and effects and causes and effects that stretches without a break all the way across the spatial and temporal influence from the first cause to the ultimate effect, okay? From my flipping the light switch to the light going on, from my moving my lips in a certain way to a guy getting punched in the nose in Chicago, blah, blah, blah. Um, good. As I say, this is a very, very deep intuition that with which we come to the world. You know, it seems to me it's an intuition which in some crude form is hardwired into us by natural selection, okay? It's not a joke that it predates human beings. It's not a joke to say that fish and, and lions and so on believe in locality, okay? If the predator is far away, he can't hurt you until he's near you, okay? And indeed, violations of locality, okay, are very much of the essence of what you know of what we have in mind when we use words like magic okay voodoo is supposed to be it's part of the essence of voodoo that it's supposed to be a genuine violation of locality okay? i never made that connection you stick pins in a doll's stomach over here and it's not thought that that gives the guy a stomach ache on the other side of town because it generates waves physical waves of anything going out it's magic Okay. And it's magic, you know, you know, it's part of the essence of what you have in mind by calling it magic that it violates locality. Okay. So, you know, 
Locality is a word that's sometimes associated with special relativity, with the constraints of special relativity that no influences can move faster than light. That altogether misses the depth of what's going on here. This is a very deep, primordial, pre-scientific, pre-human, hardwired by natural selection intuition we have about how the world works and about what can be expected from the world and its reactions to what I do. Good. Or to what any, any agent does. Good. This principle has a really interesting history in modern physics, where once again, what I mean by modern is the developments starting with figures like Galileo and Newton uh, and so on in the 17th century. Um, specifically, when Newton first wrote down his theory of gravitation, it explicitly violates this principle of locality. Okay, It says that two material bodies at a certain distance from one another will exert a certain gravitational force on one another. Okay, And moreover, if you move one of them, the gravitational force that the other will experience will change instantaneously, and it'll change without any physical process that you might refer to as propagation of that influence changing in the space between them. Okay. If the sun vanishes, we fly away immediately. And the sun vanishes, we immediately fly away. Okay, good. It was widely noticed uh, as soon as it was written down that Newton's universal law of gravitation was a violation of the principle of locality. Um, and ev and a lots of people, um, this kind of violation was referred to in the in the nomenclature of that time as action at a distance. Okay, um, Newton's Newton's universal law of gravitation was said to stipulate that there was an action at a distance from from one mass to another, and and lots of Newton's contemporaries, not least Newton himself considered it for that reason preposterous, okay? And Newton was the first to say, and he shows this by standing on his head and working very hard during his career to try to imagine a local account of gravitation, which he was never able to do. But um, everybody, including Newton, reacted to this by saying, look, this is great. This is providing a wonderful account of the motions of the planets and so on and so forth, but it couldn't be the final account of gravitation. And the reason that it couldn't be the final account of gravitation was precisely its violation of this print, this very deep principle, this very deep primordial expectation we have of the world that it's going to be local. Um, good. So, that's where things stood for a couple of hundred years, okay? There was this Newtonian law of gravitation. Everybody knew it was non-local. Everybody knew it was of fantastic predictive and explanatory utility, okay? But, but uh, I, I don't know if everybody, I don't know the history well enough, certainly lots of people were very vocally skeptical that it could possibly be the most fundamental account 
of gravitational phenomena precisely because it was non-local. Good. Nothing happens about this for 200 years. Then in the 19th century, people started making systematic scientific investigations of electrical and magnetic phenomena. And the laws that were written down, particularly for electrical, electrostatic attraction and repulsion between like electrical charges or different um, electrical charges had exactly the same mathematical form and exactly the same predictive and explanatory utility as Newton's law of gravitation. Okay, The, the force that electric charges exerted on one another, according to 19th century mathematical theories of electrostatic force, were non-local in exactly the way Newton's gravitational force was non-local. Um, but um, the interesting thing about electricity was it was a more complicated case than gravitation because early experiments by people like Faraday showed that there was some intimate connection between the electrical force and the, and the magnetic force people started trying to develop a unified theory of the two of them. Um, and these developments went on at a frenzied pace. There were lots of brilliant people working on this, especially, um, uh, you know, some names that are especially important are, are Faraday and Maxwell. And this development culminates toward the end of the 19th century in Maxwell's equations. Um, um, the first thing to say about these equations is um, early in the 19th century, when people were studying forces between electrically charged particles, people started to get into the habit initially as a purely notational advice, a device to talk about things that they called electric fields, okay? Um, um, so they would speak, but this was just a notational matter. They would speak not as if this charged particle exerted a force on this charged particle, but rather this charged particle created around it an electric field that extended throughout all space. And that field was what was directly felt by the other charged particle. Adopting this notation makes the phenomenon look more local, okay, on a sort of formal level, on a sort of mathematical level. Nobody at the time took that seriously. Nobody at the time was taken in by that, okay. Everyone was convinced that there was still a very deep metaphysical puzzle here about an apparent violation of locality. But this field language, this field notation, began to insinuate itself into the way people talked about electric and magnetic phenomena. And by the time you get to Maxwell, a big transformation has taken place. Has taken place. Maxwell is trying to put together all that's been learned over the previous century about electrical phenomena and magnetic phenomena and their empirically discovered relationship to one another and the equations, the four simple equations 
that Maxwell is forced to write down in order to bring all these phenomena together ends up treating fields as basic ontological constituents of the world on a metaphysical par with material particles. Okay, fields turn out to be the kind of thing that can push one another around. They have their own rich internal dynamics. It turns out that, for example, um, um, if you just look at the at the energies of particles interacting with one or with one another electrically, and they're flying around and having all kinds of effects on one another. If you just keep track of the energies of the particles, the total energy of the system you're looking at won't be conserved. It won't be the same at different times. The same is true of momentum. But it was discovered by various investigators that if you attributed certain amounts of energy and momentum to the electric and magnetic fields by means of a very simple formula, then you could prove that the total energy of the system consisting of the particles and the fields was conserved. So there was reason to believe that electric and magnetic fields, these things that had just been taken as notational devices 50 years earlier on, um, were now things that there were strong reasons to imagine could have energy, could have momentum. They Once again, they contained a rich internal dynamics. They were pushing and pulling on one another so on and so forth, they were acting more and more and more as if they were genuine, fundamental, physical stuff as well, okay? And one of the great um, revolutions in our picture of the world that we get to by the end of the 19th century with Maxwell having written down his equations is that the fundamental ontology, physical ontology of the world, has suddenly doubled, okay? It once consisted just of material particles. By the end of the 19th century, almost everybody is convinced that it consists of two kinds of things, material particles and electromagnetic fields, okay? And that the fields are completely on a, on a metaphysical and ontological par with the particles. Okay. Um, another thing that happened, a beautiful byproduct of this, okay, was that it was noticed that if you actually solve Maxwell's equations carefully, if you have, say, two, uh, you know, uh, two repelling positive charges here and here, and you ask what happens to the force on this charge if I suddenly move this one, it is not the case that the force on this charge instantaneously changes. It's the case that moving this one changes the electric field in its immediate vicinity. That change in the electric field in its immediate vicinity changes the electric field slightly farther away. That change in turn changes the electric field slightly farther away than that, dot, 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 dot. This change ripples across space at what turns out to be the speed of light, okay? And after a finite time, results in, the for, a, a results in a change in the force experienced by this other particle. Moreover, the process of, of, uh, um, of propagation 
of this change throughout the spatial interval, okay, is something which has measurable physical manifestations. It's indeed electromagnetic radiation. It's light, okay? There's a sort of little light flash um, propagated from one to another. You can see, if you put the appropriate instruments in there, the, the change in the force propagating at, at a definite finite speed, the speed of light, from the particle that's generating the field to the particle that's feeling the field, okay? So, at least in so far as electromagnetic radiate, uh, uh, as electromagnetic phenomena is concerned, the threat of violations of locality has collapsed, okay? Good. People like Einstein were enormously inspired by this Maxwellian uh, account of electromagnetic behavior and and engaged for a whole bunch of reasons, but one of them were these concerns about locality in trying to understand the phenomenon of gravitation, okay, more after the model of Maxwell's treatment of electromagnetic phenomena. And the result of this is one of you know what's universally regarded as one of the greatest achievements of the human imagination um, in 1915 when einstein first publishes his so-called general theory of relativity which is a theory of gravitation and lo and behold one of the many astonishing accomplishments of this theory is that newtonian mechanics is rendered local Okay, that is Newton gravitation is rendered local. That is, it turns out in Einstein's general theory of relativity, just as in the Maxwellian case, that if I move one of these masses, it changes the gravitational field or what is now the geometry of space-time in general relativity, only in its very only in the region immediately next to it. Those changes cause changes further out. Those changes cause changes further out, dot, dot, dot. And once again, this propagates through space at the speed of light, okay? And, um, and it's only after a finite time that the other mass feels the change. These, um, um, this phenomenon of propagation, which you should also in principle be able to measure, okay, is called the gravitational wave, okay? And lo and behold, just a couple of years ago, people won a Nobel Prize for finally directly observing these gravitational waves that Einstein's theory had predicted. So this is a sort of beautiful, immensely satisfying story, okay? Everybody had to hold their breath for 300 years, okay? Um, um, but they held their breath for 300 years and they were rewarded, okay? The initial crisis caused by Newton's universal law of gravitation gets beautifully, satisfyingly, breathtakingly resolved in Einstein's general theory of relativity. And lo and behold, in the 2020s, people actually, for the first time, are able to observe these gravitational waves that propagate the changes in these forces through space-time. So this is a beautiful story. Um, unfortunately, a few years after general relativity, 
with the advent of quantum mechanics, this blows up in everybody's face. Okay, quantum mechanics, um, um, and this is what makes the story so poignant and so dramatic and so shocking. Um, um, it turns out that the quantum mechanical recipe for making predictions about the outcomes of experiments includes instructions, which at least on the formal level, you'd be tempted to call non-local, okay? That is the recipe that you're supposed to follow instructs you in certain circumstances that when you measure some feature of a particle over here, depending on how that measurement comes out, you ought to instantaneously change the way you describe in your formalism the state of some particle over here, which may be arbitrarily distant, which may be on the other side of the universe. Okay. Um, um, good. Nobody in the early days of quantum mechanics, I mean, um, it was Einstein who first noticed that quantum mechanics contains these instructions, which are non-local, okay? Um, the way the algorithm was initially written down, you have to do some digging in the algorithm to really expose the fact that it's giving you non-local instructions about how you ought to proceed. It was Einstein in his famous paper with Podolsky and Rosen, the so-called EPR paper in 1935, I think, who first very clearly points out that the formalism is non-local in this way. And this is a particularly emotional matter for Einstein because he just got finished saving the world after you know 300 years from Newtonian non-locality, okay? So, um, um, so Einstein and his colleagues notice that there's this non-local feature of quantum mechanics. Of course, Bohr, and Bohr's, if you want to read Bohr's most sustained written account of his philosophical attitude towards quantum mechanics, you can find it in his famous response to this EPR paper, okay? Um, the EPR paper is, can the quantum mechanical description of the world be considered complete? And Bohr, several months later, publishes a paper, paper with the same title um, that's intended to dismiss Einstein's concerns. So Einstein notes that the algorithm contains this non-local feature, okay? Um, and he considers that weird and alarming and an indication that something we don't understand, that this couldn't be the end of the story, just as Newton's non-local theory couldn't have been the end of the story, okay? And Bohr essentially writes a paper, I mean, it's a paper that's very, very hard to understand. I've heard a story from friends of mine, just as a, just as a little sidelight, but it gives you an indication of how difficult Bohr's response was to understand. I've heard recently that almost all of the reprintings of Bohr's paper that have been published over the past 60 years had two of the pages reversed, okay? And nobody seems to have noticed, okay? This is how impenetrable this paper is, okay? You look at it, it's really hard to understand. But if, you, if somebody holds a gun to my head and says, tell me in one sentence, 
um, what this paper is saying. I take it the thing that Bohr is saying is, who gives a shit about this non-locality that we make no pretense to describing the world here, okay? This is not... The, the fact that the, the that the algorithm for making predictions contains this local non-local instruction shouldn't be construed as our saying the world is non-local. We are not saying the world is non-local. We're not saying the world is local. We're not saying the world is anything. We are not in the business of saying how the world is. We're in the business of telling you how to predict the outcomes of experiments. Who cares about this? Why is Einstein all worked up and mired in these old-fashioned questions about what's really going on in the world? We've outgrown questions of what's about what's really going on in the world. We're, you know, we're so over questions about what's really going on in the world, so on and so forth. Bohr has a lot to say in this paper. A lot of it is very hard to understand. But like I say, if you hold a gun to my head and ask me for the one sentence summary of what Bohr is saying, that's what Bohr is saying. Good. The issue lies there. I mean, astonishingly, you know, when Einstein published his paper, everybody in, in physics got very worried. Oh, my God, Einstein has an objection to quantum mechanics. Um, uh, what are we going to do? Bohr publishes this pile of gibberish a couple of months later, which is in no way a response to anything. OK, and everybody says, thank God Bohr solved the problem. And I can testify to you that generations later, if you go to your physics professor as an undergraduate, okay, and say, what about these Einstein objections to uh, to quantum mechanics? Your, your physics professor, at least when I was an undergraduate, and it certainly con continued for at least a generation or so after I was an undergraduate, your physics professor would tell you, what, what's wrong with you? What, what are you, you know, what are you, in junior high school? Bohr cleared that up a long time ago. Go read Bohr's paper. And if you say to your physics professor, can you just tell me what Bohr said to, to clear it up? The guy says, yeah, I can't remember. I don't know. But I know that Bohr cleared it up. Go read Bohr's paper. It's all over. Okay. And you go read Bohr's paper. And it is literally like listening to the oracle at Delphi, okay? It's like listening to somebody hanging upside down by their ankles, screaming hysterically, and you're supposed to understand deep wisdom in this. Okay, good. So Einstein said, something's wrong here. This is non-local, okay? Then another 30 years goes by where nobody says anything, Nobody says anything because everybody has been told that Bohr settled this problem, okay? Even though on being asked, everybody found that they weren't able to say how Bohr, you know, it's like what Augustine famously says about time, that you know exactly what it is until somebody asks you, okay? So this is true of Bohr's response to EPR. You know exactly what it is until somebody asks you, then you get all confused and you tell the student to go read Bohr's paper. And it turns out that that doesn't help. Good. Finally, Bell comes along in the mid-60s, in the mid-1960s, sees that the EPR argument is correct, okay, wonders 
is also aware, as very few people were aware at the time, of this attempt by David Bohm to solve the measurement problem, okay, to write down an explicit version of quantum mechanics, which was capable of being treated as a universal theory, something that also solves the measurement problem, treats the observer like an ordinary physical object, blah, blah, blah. Um, he was aware of Bohm's theory. He was aware that Bohm's theory was non-local in just the way that Einstein observed that the standard quantum mechanical recipe was non-local. And, and, uh, and Bell wondered whether you could improve on Bohm's theory by writing down another theory which was as, as successful as Bohm's theory and as quantum mechanics in making correct empirical predictions, but was rid of this disease of non-locality, just as Maxwell had done for electromagnetism, just as Einstein had done for gravitation. And there was a tremendous temptation to say, when confronted with, a not, with an apparent non-locality in the world, don't worry, don't get hysterical. We've been through this before, twice, okay? We've been through this with Newton. We've been through this with, with electricity. They all look non-local at first. It turns out you think harder, you hold your breath for 300 years, everything gets cleared up, okay? Um, good. Bell fiddled around with Bohm's theory for a while, trying to come up with a local version of it that was as successful at making correct experimental predictions, found he couldn't do it, okay, and then realized that there was a simple argument, an astonishingly simple argument that takes 15 minutes to present, and we now have even cleaner versions of it that take five minutes to present, um, um, found he could construct a proof that there could be, that any theory that made the same predictions about these pairs of particles as quantum mechanics did, like Bohm's theory or anything else, must include at some point or another one of these non-local instructions, okay? The non-locality was inescapable. Okay, so we now had a simple proof that what had come to, you know, that the way we had been saved in the case of gravitation, that the way we had been saved in the case of electricity was not going to happen in this quantum mechanical case. Okay, that this non-locality was not a sort of disposable artifact of the mathematical formalism or part of an approximate description of what was going on. It was absolutely, as a matter of mathematical certainty, as a matter of mathematical proof, inescapable. Okay. Um, and this is one of the great metaphysical challenges of quantum mechanics. Okay. In let, once again, you have a you have a uh, a Borean kind of approach. You have a radically instrumentalist kind of approach. You couldn't care less about non-locality. The, the 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 recipe for making predictions contains non-local instructions. Who cares? 
And if you say, well, I don't understand, isn't that asserting that the world is non-local? Answer, from Bohr's perspective, not at all, not in the slightest. You seem to think that science is in the business of telling us how the world is. It's not. Get over it. Get that out of your head. Okay? That's not what's going on. But the minute you try to entertain what we're being told as claims about the way the world is, we have a proof from Bell that we're going to be that this non-locality is going to become a genuine claim about the world out there behaving non-locally. Okay. Um, um, and this, I mean, um, I think in one of Brian Greene's books, and, and I wouldn't dispute this, Brian Greene refers to this particular discovery as the most startling single discovery in the history of natural science. Okay. And it really does... And this discovery was famously referred to by Abner Shimoni, uh, a great philosopher of physics of a previous generation, um, as what he called experimental metaphysics. Okay, this seems to be bearing on really deep claims about the structure of the world. Claims which I have just explained in my ridiculously long story. Um, claims that are deeper than than almost any other commitments of modern science, claims that are older than modern science, claims that surely cavemen believed, claims that it seems reasonable to me to say fish believe and octopuses believe and, and so on and so forth. So that's the view. And that's why um, um, this issue of Bell's theorem, this issue of non-locality is a huge, you know, is an enormous example of how if we're if we're licensed again to begin to take physics realistically, um, um, how modern physics might have very very profound and surprising implications about our ideas of the basic metaphysical structure of the world and and of our ideas about time and space and so on and so forth well again i have a, a number of of things to say one i i'm just i'm extraordinarily fortunate and by extension so are our, our listeners to get a front row seat to these impromptu mini lecture long spiels but they're they're terrific uh just as a historical comment so General relativity renders gravitation local, the end of a very long saga. I hadn't realized this connection to Einstein's contribution to EPR and why the issue of uh, locality, non-locality would be so important to him and his legacy. That's very neat. I also, uh, experimental metaphysics is a great way of describing it. This is very deep. deep yeah, deep. this is Abner Shimoni's very nice phrase, right? It's not... It doesn't convey the importance of these experiments. You know, uh, let me just tell you a little bit more about that. Bell says, Bell, Bell has a proof that a very specific, very small subset of the empirical predictions of quantum mechanics are incompatible with locality, are logically incompatible with locality. The nice thing about this is 
this set of predictions, as I said, this is not all the predictions of quantum mechanics by any means. He, he shows that if merely some very specific and quite small subset of those predictions are true, then, math, then locality is ruled out, okay? So um, he said, if these particular experiments come out in this particular way, I can give you a proof that locality is ruled out. It turned out that the experiments he was talking about were easy to do with technologies that were available at the time. People ran out and did them, okay? Um, um, you can then refine these experiments, make them, you know, eliminate possible loopholes, possible errors in, in, in your detection devices, so on and so forth which people then did. There was a big industry of improving these experiments because experimentalists have to make a living too. Um, um, but people uh, uh, people ran out and did these experiments in much more detail, but from the very beginning. The experiments came out exactly as quantum mechanics predicts, and it was this small set of ex subset of experiments. Those are all you needed to do. And the fact that those experiments came out the way they did Bell showed was incompatible with the possibility of there being any comprehensive local description of the world. Okay. Um, um, and Abner Shimoni meant to convey by this title, wow, we did these, we had to just do a couple of measurements and we found out, so we found out not only that quantum mechanics the quantum mechanical predictions about these things are right. It now no longer matters to this to this conclusion whether at some point in the future we're going to cease to believe in quantum mechanics. That's not going to make any difference. What we know is incompatible with relativity. Uh, excuse me, with locality, is is the quantum mechanical predictions about this very small set of experiments, okay? Those predictions have already been measured to be correct, okay? It doesn't matter if for other reasons later on we abandon um, quantum mechanics, okay? These particular predictions of quantum mechanics, we already experimentally know to be true, and that's enough to know that no matter what the right theory of the world turns out to be, locality is false, okay? Um, so Abner Shimoni reacted to this, I think, very appropriately by saying to call this experimental physics is not conveying is not conveying the enormity of what's just happened. This is experimental metaphysics. Hmm. Well, I think that there are a few different directions in which we could go at this point. And maybe I'll I'll try enumerating them, and you can see what what makes sense. They all have to do with I guess the riddle. But one way is to stick with some high level issues because you describe two ways of using quantum mechanics to get a better understanding of the metaphysics of our world. Two approaches, top down and and bottom up, that might be interested interesting to get into. Another one is you in the course of this story. Maxwell brought fields into the ontology of the world with his equations, 
And this, of course, has a parallel with the introduction of the wave function to the ontology of the world. And we might talk about wave function realism and its nomic alternatives propounded by the primitive ontologists. And then the, the, the third possibility is um, ways of dealing with locality, non-locality, perhaps by rethinking or, or talking about our notion of space. But whatever you want to do. So those are those three questions are in fact intimately related to one another. So yeah. So maybe I'll. Um, um, so it's nice of you to ask me to to be a guest on your show um, in conjunction with the very recent publication of this book of mine um, um, called "A Guess at the Riddle," um, and 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 so I can say a bit. So I can touch on all three of the. Uh, of the questions you raised by talking a little bit about what's going on there. So look, as I said, what happened, I would say, about 20 years ago or 25 years ago is that people like Tim Maudlin and Shelley Goldstein and Barry Lower and Nino Zangi and, and a bunch of other people and me thought we were done making the case that Bohr and his circle were wrong, okay? That uh, that the measurement problem was a scientific problem, that we already had several proposals for solving it on the table. We don't know yet which of those proposals is going to turn out to be the right one. The different proposals, in many cases, differ in empirically discoverable ways although the experiments we would need to do in order to distinguish them from one another are beyond our current technological capabilities. Um, but we, we thought we had finished making the case that this was a scientific problem, not, um, um, not the, the occasion of the scientific confrontation with the eternal ineffable mystery of being or or something like that okay um we thought we had finished making that case um we thought we had as it were cleared you know um established a clearing in which the project of learning about our metaphysics from our physics could get up and running again and and questions about what the basic ontology of the world is um, uh, and so on, questions about what the basic structure of space and time are, which were the traditional concerns of metaphysics, but as very much informed by physics, that conversation between physics and metaphysics could get up and running again. And as I mentioned an hour and a half or so ago, um, Something interesting that happened is that this collection of people, people like me, Barry Lower, Tim Maudlin, Shelley Goldstein, Nino Zangi, lots of other people, found that although we were finishing each other's sentences in demol you know, in insisting that the measurement problem was a scientific problem, in in resisting the view of Bohr and his circle. The minute we felt like that job was done, not that everybody was convinced, but that anybody who was willing to read the stuff and think about it would be convinced that we had said all we could say. 
the minute we figured that job was done and we moved on to the obvious next job, okay, what is the ontology that this theory is depicting for us? How do we read the metaphysics of the world off of this theory? The minute we turned to this other problem, we found that we weren't in lockstep at all anymore, that, 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 uh, that we all had very different intuitions about what looked like the obvious ontology to read off of these theories. And I think there was a bunch of looking around at each other and saying, my God, I thought I knew you. I mean, I mean, how could, how could your, I, I, I thought we were all thinking about the same thing. How could your intuitions about this have turned out to be so different from mine? But we did find that we were left with very different intuitions about what the obvious way to read off ontology and metaphysical structure from these solutions to the measurement problem that we had, what the right way to do that would be. Um, um, it always seemed just very natural <laughs> without even thinking about it much. that the question you wanted to ask yourself in order to read off ontology from these new versions of quantum mechanics we had is to ask yourself a question like, what is to this quantum mechanical theory as particles are to Newtonian mechanics? Okay, um, Particles, everybody agrees, are the fundamental ontology of the new of the world that Newtonian mechanics is telling us about. Okay, so the question you want to ask yourself is: You look at the logical structure of the theory, you look at the mathematical structure of the, th of the theory, and you ask yourself: What stands to this theory as particles stand to Newtonian mechanics? Or equivalently, what is it that the equations of motion in this theory? are the equations of the motion of, okay? Just as the equations of motion in Newtonian mechanics, like F equals MA, are the equations of the motion of material particles. If you ask yourself the question that way, the answer is perfectly straightforward and trivial. The equations of motion of quantum mechanics, uh, the equations of motion associated with quantum mechanics, are the equations of the motion of the quantum mechanical wave function. Okay. On, on you know, Borean anti-realist pictures of the world, the wave function, like everything else in the theory, was not to be interpreted as a physical object. Okay. It was some kind of it was some kind of mathematical device which helped you make predictions about the probabilities of the outcomes of experiments. But the minute you've solved the measurement problem, you've eliminated the obstacles to taking this theory realistically, and you try to take it realistically, and you approach the question of what the theory is about, okay, in the way that I just described, the answer is just immediate. The theory is about the wave function in exactly the sense that Newtonian mechanics is about the motions of material particles, and in exactly the same sense, and this is a closer analogy, as Maxwell's equations are about the evolutions of electric and magnetic fields. Okay, good. 
Um, this is what I'm referring to as the top-down approach. You start with the mathematical formulation of the theory, and you ask yourself, what is to this theory as particles are to Newtonian mechanics? Good. You're immediately, trivially led to the answer, oh, it's about the wave function. It seems like uh, if I follow this analogy with Newtonian mechanics and with Maxwellian electrodynamics, um, the concrete physical object here whose evolution is being described by this theory is the wave function, okay? Um, now, the minute you say that, you have questions to answer that you don't have in the Newtonian case and you don't have in the Maxwellian case. And that's because unlike Newtonian particles and unlike Maxwellian electromagnetic fields, these wave functions, which you're now declaring are the fundamental concrete objects of your ontology, are things that undulate around not in the familiar three-dimensional space of our everyday experience of the world, but in this very, very high-dimensional space. Um, and, um, and so the minute you say, gee, I guess what I'm getting from this theory is that the concrete fundamental physical objects are these wave functions themselves, then it, it seems like what you're committing yourself to is a claim of the form that the stage on which the real precise microscopic history of the world plays itself out is this very high dimensional space, not the three dimensional space we're used to. And the first question that you're going to want to answer, or one of the first questions you're going to want to answer is, okay, then you're going to need to tell me a story about why it is that um, that our, our everyday macroscopic empirical experience of the world is as of a three-dimensional world, okay? Um, um, our experience of the world as three-dimensional must, if this is true, be in some way misleading um, um, or not the whole story or something like that. And you're going to want a story about how these three-dimensional appearances get produced, okay, by these undulations of this concrete wave function object in this very high dimension space. And one of the first stories that you want to tell, if you're reading the theory this way, is how the, the mechanics of the production of this three of these three-dimensional appearances works. And you know, one of the burdens on anyone who's trying to defend this kind of wave function realist view um, um, is going to be to tell a story like that. And a lot of papers I wrote since, you know, the, the first time I know of that this wave function realist view was, was put in print anywhere was in a paper that I wrote, I think sometime in the late 1990s. Um, um, and, and obviously the questions that arise the most immediately are these questions about, well, where do these three-dimensional appearances come from? Tell me the story of those. And I've spent a good deal of time in the years since then, um, trying to make it clear how that story goes. I think the story is in fact 
surprisingly simple and straightforward and has to do with the structure of the dynamical laws and the way the structure of the dynamical laws um it has to do with taking seriously on board the notion that the way things appear to us um is more a matter of dynamics than than basic ontological structure that's a bit of a long story um but anyway I've spent some time trying to tell that story. There are other people, people like Shelley, people like Tim, people like Nino, who had a very different reaction from the word go. Okay. They said, look, the minute you realize that just doing this little game that I just described, okay, you ask, what is to quantum mechanics as particles are to Newtonian mechanics, whether the quantum mechanical equations of motion, the equations of motion of, the minute you notice that this way of trying to answer the ontological question is going to commit you to this very high dimensional fun, you know, fundamental space, you ought to come to your senses very quickly and see that this shows that this approach you were taking is just a non-starter. Okay, the approach is very intuitive. I see the appeal of it, but for God's sake, grow up. Okay, two or three steps into it, you're supposed to see that this commits you to preposterous claims about what the fundamental space of the world is. Indeed, lots of these people seem to be convinced. I, I don't want to misrepresent them. Um, seem to be convinced that any claim to the effect that the sort of three-dimensional objects of our everyday experience of the world, tables and chairs and haircuts and universities and stuff like that, are really the undulations of something in a very high-dimensional space. It feels to them just like a complete non sequitur, like apples and oranges. That is, you say, how would things have to be undulating around in this high dimensional space in order for there to be tables and chairs here? It seems to them like asking, how would oranges need to be moving around in order for there to be an apple? Okay. And you say, look, there's no way for oranges to move around such that there would be an apple, okay? They just have nothing to do with one another, okay? And this is a complete non-starter, and it stands for them as a very fundamental feature of our empirical experience of the world that there must be in the fundamental metaphysical structure of the world, a fundamental three-dimensional space. Otherwise, the business of making connections with our empirical experience of the world just never gets off the ground, okay? So this was a very basic difference in our intuitions, okay? Um, and this led them to develop these um, primitive ontology views, these gnomic attitudes toward the wave function. You say to them, wow, taking the wave function to be a law, it's so awkward. It's so, 
it, it feels so goofy. So the wave function is a gnomic entity, but then there are laws of the evolution of the wave function. So there are various levels of laws, stuff like that. They perfectly well understand all this, okay? They just think that the other approach, the minute you start identifying the fundamental structure of the world with this higher dimensional space, it's just a non-starter. It's just a non-sequitur. There's going to be no way to make a sort of, you know, intuitive, explanatorily useful connection with our everyday three-dimensional experience of the world. I don't think that's true. Um, indeed, I think there's a nice way to make this connection. And one of the things that's happening in this book is that um, I thought recently that I found a much more compelling way to sort of lead a reader or a listener to this high dimensional wave function, realistic picture, what I call a bottom up approach rather than a top down approach. Where, as I was just describing, in the top-down approach, which is what we've just been talking about, you start with the finished mathematical formalism of some physical theory, Bohm's theory, or some other way of solving the measurement problem, some other version of quantum mechanics that incorporates a solution to the measurement problem so that you can begin to talk realistically about it at all. You start with this finished mathematical architecture and you begin to ask what kinds of metaphysical pictures of the world could be sort of draped around this architecture of a mathematical theory in such a way as to fit with it well, okay? So you ask yourselves these, these questions that I just described asking. Um, 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 what is to the quantum mechanical mathematical structure as particles are to the Newtonian mathematical structure or something like that. That's what I'm calling a top-down approach. Um, the reason I was inspired to write this book is that it occurred to me that there was a very different approach, approach that's supposed to lead to the same place, which is the reasonableness of this high-dimensional wave function realist picture. Um, but leads to it by quite a different route. You ask yourself the kinds of questions that people should have been asking themselves in the very beginnings of quantum mechanics a hundred years ago. Wow, these subatomic particles are behaving really strangely, okay? These experiments are coming out in ways that are really weird. What kind of a thing would a particle have to be in order to behave this way, okay? So you ask yourself the sort of nuts and bolts in the weeds, scientific kinds of questions, which which if Bohr and his circle had been honest, reasonable, you know, scientific workers, they would have been asking themselves in the first place. Instead of, instead of you know, creating this whole mishigas with Hegelianism and, and, and I don't know what, good. And I found that if you allow yourself to play very, very simple games, cooking up toy theories, very simple versions of theories, incorporating a higher dimensional space, 
um, but just slightly higher, not much higher, like in quantum mechanics. But you go from a one-dimensional space to a two-dimensional space or something like that. And imagining things knocking around in this higher dimensional space and asking yourself how those things would look if you look at them from the perspective of a lower dimensional space of our experience. And the striking thing was the minute you be you start to play very simple games like this, um, behaviors that are sort of distinctively quantum mechanical, behaviors that are sort of the signature behaviors of quantum mechanics just fall right out, okay, the minute you start playing these kinds of games. So that was very striking to me. Um, um, it was very encouraging. Um, um, it looked like a much better and more compelling explanation of the quantum mechanical behaviors than the top-down kind of explanation. So that's what suggested to me to, to write a short book, even though I had been, you know, talking people's ears off about this wave function realism for 20 years, this seemed to me a completely different and much more compelling way to approach it. Mind you, a big part of the reason I stole this title from uh, Pierce, okay, a big part of the reason the title appeared uh, appealed to me is that the title, and I hope you'll agree if you've seen the book, the book, I hope, has a kind of modesty about it at the end of the day, okay? I don't, I don't think, I wrote, the first book I ever wrote, which was like 40 years ago, a book called Quantum Mechanics and Experience, okay? was a book that was very much involved with this first project of resisting and refuting the anti-realism of Bohr and his circle. And that book was very much the book of a angry, very confident young man, okay? And, you know, um, 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 it was it was what Sidney Morgan, Morgan Besser used to call the Edward G. Robinson approach to philosophy, which is that you just suddenly bust through the door with guns blazing in both hands. You kill everybody in sight, okay? And you tell people what the truth is, okay? Um, here, I take myself to be in a different position, okay? Um, here, I'm not sure I see a knockdown argument that the primitive ontologists are wrong. I'm not sure I can see because we're getting into metaphysics after all, you know, how, how there are ever going to be fully decisive arguments about this. I think that to the extent that I can get somebody to see how this, how, how this new version of a, of a wave function realist picture works, you have this feeling that if you can just yell at them for long enough about it, they're going to see how much more explanatory it is. You know, it's this feeling of like, of like, you're looking at one of these at one of these optical illusions of a vase and two faces uh, uh, looking at each other, and you show it to your friend, and your friend says, "I can't see the faces," and you say, "Come on, don't you see? Here's the nose." here's the mouth, so on and so forth. And you say that to them for a little while, and they say, yes, of course, 
now I now I see the faces. Um, I'm hoping it's like that. But when I wrote my first book, I was in a way in a much more fortunate position. I was in the happy position of just pitting myself against people whose views were riddled with trivial, outright, stupid, logical contradictions. Okay. So it was just easy to come in and shoot the room up and kill everybody in sight. Okay. And say, we got a bunch of new rules here. This is, this is, this is a different exercise. This is an exercise in arguing that if you really think about it, you know, I can't imagine that you're not going to find this the most compelling explanation of these phenomena. And as I say, what suggested that after all this time of bending people's ears with this wave function realist view since the 1990s, what suggests that I write a new book about it is I found a completely different and what seems to me a much more compelling way to claw your way towards it from the bottom starting with the weirdness of the behavior of these subatomic particles and asking yourself what the hell kinds of things could behave that way okay rather than starting with a full the 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 full mathematical formalism of a theory of their behaviors and asking yourself what kind of metaphysical picture of the world went along with mm -hmm. well i think this modesty is certainly conveyed by the title. It's not the answer to the riddle. It's a, a guess at the riddle. But then the the third essay in the book also begins with right. a disclaimer with that plea, I it, a plea for help. Right. Yes. Yeah, so right. ra rather than shooting up the room, it's uh, a useful contribution to clarifying the question. It's good. I have a, a, a quick question. You used a word that I don't think I've ever heard before, and that's you said this whole Mishigas. Is that Yiddish? Oh, it's Yiddish. Um, if you're in philosophy, you have no excuse for not knowing Yiddish. Um, um, Mishigas is craziness. Okay, um, that's a good um, one too. Um, craziness, um, it, it, it's a little less, it's a less aggressive word than the English craziness. It's more, it's more sympathetic and and uh, forgiving of the crazy people than the English word craziness is. But it essentially means craziness. All this Michigan. Mm. Yes, uh, we were talking about uh, Brian Keating, this cause well observer. I'll call him an observer and astronomer before we started, and he's also Jewish and. From him, I learned the Yiddish word schlamazel, which I think is also a terrific one. But uh, I mean, I have way more questions. There's there's so much more to talk about. Your book goes into a lot of depth, but I feel like this is probably a great place to stop. So David, thank you again so much. This was terrific. I really enjoyed reading, I guess, at the riddle. Thank you. And I had a great time. Um, um... Well, talking your eros. Um, thank you. Thank you for the invitation and thank you for the questions. It was a lot of fun. Hold on. If you haven't subscribed, liked, commented, or reviewed, that would be so helpful. And if you haven't yet, you could also follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Robinson Earhart.